HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. So, hey, we're doing a special recording of Heritage Radio Network at the Cornelius Street Cafe downstairs. Exactly. All right. So we're just going to let this conversation go, and there's some cool people, and uh, we'll do some work later on. Well, welcome to Cornelius Street. Um, This is actually the second radio show of the day. Today. Because we do a show with Janet Coleman and David Dozer on WBAI, which is broadcast live from this very stage on Sundays. Um, It is wonderful to have all of you here. Uh, Alison and I go back several minutes minutes um you and i have barely met but liz stretch walked into our life some some few seconds ago and said why don't we do a series so we're doing a series and it's called fork it over um and it's really about taste and talks and since we do um a lot of very different things here just as background we open 37 and a half years ago. We were one room with a toaster oven. Um, we were three artists who started this place, so it still has very much the feel of an artist's cafe. However, the food has somewhat grown thanks largely to Chef Dan Latham, one of several Lathams in the audience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Robin, let's, let's have Liz introduce yes, the program. exactly. So ladies and gentlemen, well, welcome everybody. Thanks for coming. Um, I'm so happy that everybody's here this evening and we have such wonderful people to talk about their passion in life. So the whole thing around Fork It Over, the whole premise for this series is that there are so many wonderful people out there doing incredible things around food, around beverages, and you go and hear them speak and you hear them talk about the kinds of things they do but you don't really hear about them as people you don't really hear the human side of their story and for me that's really the kind of the big piece of the jigsaw puzzle you know that's where the inspiration lies and that's really where this comes in because I feel that this is a platform for people to talk about that passion and to share it and inspire others. Hopefully with a British accent, right? Hopefully. Which all master. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's been a lot of talk about Winston Churchill this week, right? Has there? There has. 
Am I, oh. am I well? Um, Winston Churchill once said, uh, a good talk is like a woman's skirt. He said... The shorter the better. <laughs> <laughs> the shorter the better from the audience. <laughs> he said, it ne- a woman's skirt, it, a good talk is like a woman's skirt. It needs to be short enough to cover the subject. <laughs> <laughs> and long enough to pique the interest. <laughs> so I will keep it short and sweet, like a woman's skirt of the right proportions. And um, I will move on to the wonderful people who are here this evening. I'm so pleased that Alison Patel of Bren Whiskey is here this evening to share with us her gorgeous tale of moving through life on a big journey from being a ballerina, a professional dancer, to finding joy elsewhere. And I'll leave it up to Alison to talk about that. And then to Derek Schlesselman, <laughs> who has a wonderfully unpronounceable name um, after a whiskey or two. Um, and he will talk all about his wonderful craft distillery work down in Van, uh, the Van Brunstall House down in Red Hook in Brooklyn, um, where he has 6,000 square feet, where he makes all sorts of wonderful beverages, including grappa, whiskey, rum, yep. and yeah. moonshine. Of course. Um, and then Jimmy Cobbone, of course, is here with us today because Jimmy is the wonder, the legend that is Jimmy um, of the East Village. <laughs> Jimmy's 43. Um, Jimmy is th- the most modest man I've ever met, I think. Um, he is, I would say so. Seriously. And this is actually turning into a very long skirt. So I will turn it over. I will turn it over to Jimmy um, to 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 um, explain what we're doing here and um, well this is cool Liz thanks for inviting me we, we this was planned to be a little evening talk at Cornelius Street Cafe and I know you're doing a series here with with Robin and Chef Dan it's really awesome it's a great place so let's give a hand to everybody Woo! we figured because tonight's the Grammys you know that everyone who's cool in New York doesn't watch TV but for some reason everyone watches the Grammys we decided that we would do a recording for Heritage Radio Network as, as part of the panel tonight and I'd like to introduce you know Derek from uh, Van Brunt Stillhouse is really one of the leading guys in New York State uh, for you know new indie spirits and whiskeys and I really think that you guys should start off and just tell us about how you got started and uh, what what the people are drinking in the audience because I know you're sampling them as well uh, so yeah, I brought with me my. Um, uh, thank you very much. By the way, Jimmy, that was a very kind introduction. My, uh, I brought with me tonight our single malt from uh, Van Brunt Stillhouse. Uh, it's a hundred percent malted barley, so it's uh, it's a single malt like a Scotch, but is but it is uh, decidedly American in a number of different ways. Uh, not the least of which is it's aged in a in a, in a new barrel. Most uh, scotches, uh, which is the predominant single malt that people are familiar with are aged in used barrels, so this uh, has a lot more American oak uh, characteristics than, than your typical scotch does. And, um, and then it also has a much more uh, unconventional malt bill than your typical malt, uh, single malt as well, which um, you'll have to try it to enjoy it, because uh, I don't know that you can taste through the radio, unfortunately. When, when you say unconventional malt bill, what, what do you mean? So it's it's a hundred percent malted barley. So it's all one type of grain. Mm-hmm. But uh, what malt is is that when you 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 get malt wet and you let it grow, or you get barley wet and you let it grow just a little bit, and then once it's grown a little bit, you dry it. <clears throat> How you dry it 
uh, has a huge impact on its flavor. And so um, uh, a typical scotch, having been produced at a very large facility, tends to be a single type of malted barley. What I'm doing is, is bringing like a microbrewery, microbrews uh, sensibility to making a, a recipe, and I'm bringing in different types of malt. So I have something like eight or nine different types of malted barley in my mash bill. Mm. Different varietals of barley or different <clears throat> types of malting? Different types of malting from different malt houses. So <laughs> my base malt, um, uh, up in the, like what we're tasting right now, the base malt that actually comes from Canada. Um, I am starting to use some base malt from New York State, but uh, all the specialty malts, the other five or six or seven, <clears throat> excuse me, malts that I'm using are from all around the world. And so they are probably different varietals in that uh, mm-hmm. some are coming from Germany, some are coming from uh, the U.S., some are coming from Belgium, but they've all been treated very differently at the malt house. And Allison from, from Brand Whiskey, tell us a little bit about your, your background and, and your product. Sure, yeah. So um, so I didn't come from this industry. I was certainly a professional dancer before um, a couple other careers in between ballet and whiskey, but oh, really? um, <laughs> trial and error, trial and error. Um, uh, for me, my passion in, in whiskeys was actually really all about single malts, particularly in international single malts. And for me, that even distilled further down into single malts that were reflective of terroir, right? Which is a term we hear so much in wine being kind of made of the earth, of the earth surrounding um, perhaps one vineyard, or in my case, one distillery. So I met this distiller in Cognac, France, who was appropriately making Cognac, and he still is, um, third generation. And he had started making a version of the whiskey that has now become Bren. And at the time when I met him, he had no plans to go to market, and the whiskey was about four years old max, and then he had been laying it down uh, each year since. So I got to start working with him with a four-year-old whiskey, and then we worked together for another four years, so we brought it up to eight years together. And what I was really excited about was he has a farm, right? It's a farm distillery. So he's growing two heirloom varietals of barley, all done right there in Cognac. Um, He's got a proprietary strain of yeast that we're using for our fermentation, and all the distillation is happening on on a Charante Alembic still, which is really just a traditional cognac still. And you get so many more fruit forward esters in your new make when you use that type of still instead of, say, a pot still, which is, if we're talking about single malts, typical for a scotch single malt style of production. So I got to start with this whiskey that was already a very floral distillate coming off the still, and it already spent four years um, maturing in a virgin French limousin oak barrel. So to Derek's point, most single malts that people are used to in terms of the single malt style typically come from Scotland, and in that are typically aged in a bourbon, sherry, and or port barrel. So here was this really cool distillate, aged in a virgin French oak cask, and one of the most expensive species of French oak at that. Um, And I'm sitting here going, well, we're doing this in cognac. We've got all these beautiful cognac barrels sitting around. Have you ever tried moving your whiskey into some of these? And he's like, wow. no. <laughs> so a couple years in, we uh, we start moving the whiskey into these um, beautiful um, cognac barrels that he had emptied with his eau de vie, or from his eau de vie. And, um, and we got to put the whiskey in, and it just, you know, you guys who are tasting it here, do you get that kind of floral, fruit-forward element to it? Mm-hmm. It's do. totally different. So it's yeah. fun. That's great. Well, Robin, it's a privilege to have you at the table with us because you've been at Cornelia Street Cafe for, for so many years. How have you seen like the, the changes in people's taste for, 
liquors and, and even whiskeys over the years. I mean, it's well, a long what, time. What, what is very interesting is I arrived in America, whoops, from um, a country slightly to the north of France. Um, <laughs> and when I arrived here, wine was... Wine was something you, you, you really didn't talk about. I mean, what you talked about was, this is 1967, and the, the two things that I could not understand about American food and drink were cheese, which was almost unheard of, and wine, which was California Chablis or California Burgundy. Um, so in the last 47 years, obviously since I was 11, um, sorry, that was a radio <laughs> joke. Um, <laughs> in the last 47 years, there has been, I think, a seismic change in the way that Americans um, not only appreciate, not only are educated in, but search out and understand um, what, what that strange combination of nose and mouth that is taste, um, particularly with liquor and wine, is all about. I remember taking my kids when they were quite young to France from here, and you know, one used to reliably go around Paris and get a croissant that was impeccable from any boulangerie. And we would do that, my kids were maybe eight and five, and we would do that and you'd go, hmm, it's okay. Um, but, you know, let's go to the... So the next day we would take the next croissant du jour, etc. And I realized that, a yes, it was the year that somebody had tried to bomb the McDonald's in Paris, <laughs> um, which, you know, was certainly a blow for something. Um, but I actually felt as though at that moment the center of gravity had almost switched across the Atlantic. So that I feel as though with the, certainly with the, with you, with the two of you, um, there is an understanding of tradition and history and a willingness to experiment, which is very American. And the notion that you are the one, Alison, <laughs> to suggest, oh, why don't we use the cognac barrels <laughs> for single malt whiskey? And that you can bring in these different malts from all over and sort of convert them into the great state of Brooklyn. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, there's something absolutely wonderfully both inventive and pragmatic about that. And, you know, having watched some of this, having started out in one room with a toaster oven and no liquor license, and now we do 35 wines by the glass and serve Bren, amongst <laughs> other things, and hopefully some of your stuff. Um, it's been it's been a very interesting little um, journey. I will obviously. say, you know, fast forward to 2015, where we're at. A lot of good restaurant customers, bar customers, know about these days all the mm -hmm. specialty, but mainstream bourbons in America. Yeah, and that seems to be the number one seller for people mm. interested in spirits. So now I feel like a lot of them are ready to be turned on to these new indie spirits that, that mm. Brent is and Van Brunt still has. So I wanted to, to ask Derek first, you know, what were some of the uh, you know, more mainstream spirits that turned you on 
uh, when you when you were getting into this? Because I know you were a home brewer as well. Yeah, so I, I brewed beer uh, before I made whiskey, and, uh, and but I also have been a, a scotch drinker for a number of years. And uh, you know, actually, when I when I grew up, I my father was a scotch drinker. He drank uh, Johnny Walker Red, <clears throat> and I never understood it. Like that, that why do you drink that? Swill, uh, and uh, and, it, and it, it, it's swill. <laughs> why, why do you drink that swill? Uh, and and uh, it wasn't until I started drinking single malts that I started to understand. Because because uh, just for those of you who don't know, in Scotland you're allowed to have uh, up to eighty percent neutral spirits in a blended Scotch. So I, I don't know. Uh, Johnny Walker is a very storied, very. Uh, elegant company. I'm sure that they're they're not using 80% neutral spirits, but uh, it, but Johnny Walker Red lacks any sort of really uh, robust distinction. Uh, no offense, but um, but single malts have a lot of really interesting things going on. It wasn't until I tried single malts that I really started to uh, experience the breadth of flavors that were available from this. Uh, you know, it's some level really simple product. It it is nothing but malted barley yeast and water and uh and so it was uh sort of the the west coast of of scotland that really got my attention uh you know the freud lagavulin uh and uh the the scotches from from um from that part of the country that really uh captured my attention at at the beginning right what about for you allison i mean you went from ballet to Booze. Booze and, <laughs> and cognac. I mean. There's the title of your autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> Write it down. Sounds like you need to take Robin on a trip to Yeah, yeah, to we're, we, we've got a lot to do. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so I... Um, I blame my husband, first of all, or, or thank him. I'm <laughs> um, maybe both. Um, yeah, I, I, I really, I fell in love with whiskeys, uh, mostly single malts, and really it was pretty split between Scotch single malts and Japanese single malts. Um, so Japanese really, um, I mean, the Yamazaki 18, the first time I had that, that would be the whiskey that turned me into a whiskey nerd um, and made me have to figure out, go on my own personal quest to try and understand what was so unique about that whiskey? Why was that the first whiskey that, of all the ones that I had tried at that point, which weren't as many as I've tried since, but what was it about that specific whiskey that made it so intriguing to me? And was it just because of where it was, thus my question for um, innovating with terroir, or, or was it just that one particular expression that just happened to be awesome? And it's both. So Liz, for you, <laughs> like, you know, you're putting together these talks with Robin at Cornelia Street Cafe, I mean, what, what questions do you have for these guys? Because they're, they're kind of mavericks out there. I'm interested as to how you both decided to completely immerse yourselves in this as a profession. I mean, aside from you saying, you know, you're, this is your nerdiness, right? So <laughs> it became a, a thing that totally got you somehow. And I'm interested at the moment at which that happened for both of you. So when did you both decide? And I know that Derek was, in his former life, a... Uh, today uh, uh, editor at the daily show with john stewart t- oh. the, the john stewart yeah exactly oh. and I, I i knew about that and i'm interested in that what happens to somebody when they decide to totally become immersed in something that is related to food or beverages and in, in this kind of way and for you both of you it's very profound i mean i can see it you know you're very passionate about <clears> this and, and and doing very well at what you're doing and i'd love to hear both of your stories as to when that moment occurred and how it occurred, and was it a specific moment or was it a series of moments? Tell me about that. 
Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it's, you know, it, it doesn't. It sounds like a really simple question, but it for <laughs> me, <laughs> for me, it's an incredibly complex question. And uh, it, it for me, it, it goes all the way back to my childhood. I, I'm the first generation of my family did not grow up on a farm. Uh, my father grew up on a farm, and my father worked. Uh, we, yeah, my my grandfather lost his farm in the in the depression, and and my so my grand my father rather. Um, uh, he worked in agriculture, but he wasn't a farmer. He was worked in agribusiness, <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, he uh, he and I disagreed wildly on on how one should be a farmer. But uh, but regardless of that, he taught me a lot of uh, a respect for what farmers were and 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 how we grow our thing our our food and how we interact with with uh, with the earth, and uh, and so. I've always felt this void in my life when I was working in television because television is very ethereal. There's no nothing tangible about it, and I always found myself, um, my the joy in my life was was coming from cooking, from gardening, from uh, you know doing things with my hands, creating an actual tangible, drinkable, eatable, touchable product, and so um, uh, so I, I, I it was a it was a big leap for me to leave this you know relatively successful career to uh to move off on my own and create something that you can drink mm -hmm. amazing i was wondering if you'd talk about the tangibility <laughs> of it that's exactly where my mind went too and i think um you know writing is also an art and as is dancing and you here's your art you put it out there you write a script someone says it that moment is fleeting and it's gone right same with ballet you go out there and you perform Swan Lake or Nutcracker or something and if you were in the audience that night you got to catch it and if you weren't sorry it's gone <laughs> I mean YouTube and obviously videos and things like that have changed that a little bit more but um, but certainly when I was dancing there was not the social media that there is now um, so it's really exciting to be able to create something and, and be passionate and be artistic and be expressive in something that gets to be while it is still fleeting you can taste this you know I, I do all single cast release right now so if you don't get to try barrel 284 sorry you've missed out but at the same time you actually get to sit here and experience it and and if I'm not in the room, right, there's a bar, there's many bars in Chicago, in Indianapolis, in, in you know, wherever that can serve this whiskey and people still get to try something that I've created without me physically being in the space, what, which what is I, kind of a cool. I'm, I'm really interested, actually, for both of you, how it is a small, um, sort of small-ish, kind of food entrepreneurs, right, beverage, uh, you know, entrepreneurs in this field. How is it for both of you out there? I mean, because there's so much support for what you both do in terms of, you know, you're, you're both really out there doing something no one else is doing. And there are obviously those huge brands out there that try and take over the market and have a huge portion of that market. And what you're both doing is something quite radical, right? Mm -hmm. Quite, it's like it, you, you're at the frontier of innovation in terms of, you know, doing something that this is about, very much about the people involved, right? What you're doing, Derek, is about you and your operation down in Red Hook, which has a whole story to it, a whole narrative, whether you like it or not, it just, it's all about authenticity of product, right? Because it's absolutely you and what you're doing there. With you, it's your story attached to you finding these amazing people to work with and bringing that to market. Mm -hmm. And how do you find dealing with that as, as business people? That's a whole that's a whole lesson to be learned by other people trying mm. to inspire and to and to also replicate that you know I'd love to hear what you what you think about all of that. I think that's a whole other show. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
the business is a, is a, is a massive part of it. <laughs> um, I... Uh, I'll, I'll start and say that, um, yes, it's, it's absolutely a challenge, and, and especially uh, when you look at selling a product here in the United States specifically, if we just look at the U.S. market, um, you know, we're, we're working within very archaic post-prohibition laws that were really set up by mm. gangsters. So they're, <laughs> right. not, they're not friendly. They're mm-hmm. certainly not friendly to the small business. Um, and just the whole fact that in every state we have to go to different distributors, some states are controlled, some counties are controlled, every, every step forward comes with another bag of hurdles and tricks, and it's a whole new language. It really, I feel like every day I'm walking up a mountain that speaks a completely different language, and I have to learn it very quickly, mm-hmm. and then I have to go down the other side, and the next mm-hmm. day go up a different language that speaks an entirely different right. language. And um, yeah. I would, say, I would say, Derek, I mean, you're a different situation because you're in New York State. And do you think that the laws have changed to kind of benefit new small d- distillers like yourself? Uh, yeah, I mean, New York is incredibly supportive. Uh, I mean, I understand exactly uh, what you're saying 100% because I feel that way all the time, even in New York. Uh, but New York is, is, uh, is making a great effort to help small businesses succeed. Uh, I'm actually allowed to... Um, to actually sell directly to bars and restaurants, whereas uh, uh, you, I, if I'm not mistaken, you have to sell to a distributor. Correct. You're not actually allowed to come bring your bottle to this restaurant and take a check away from them. Correct. I'm allowed to just walk into a bar, restaurant, any leg- uh, licensed facility, uh, whether it be a liquor store or a uh, restaurant and, and what what is the difference? Is well, it, it was local and <clears throat> it's because I'm a product is from yeah products. because I'm being I'm actually producing my products from New York's in New York State and uh, and if you have to act as an importer yeah I have uh, to sell a, it to an importer yeah. and then sell it uh-huh. to a distributor yeah. and then sell and, it to a restaurant and uh, and it so it's um uh it's a it's a huge huge massive step for 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 them to allow us to do that and it all comes back around to you know in pre-prohibition Pabst owned a slice of every single bar that wasn't owned a a slice of which wasn't owned by Budweiser so um so so the the I find that when you when you dig under the surface of the laws there there was always a good reason for it I mean that 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 prohibition was a, uh, a time of lawlessness and, and run by gangsters, but post-prohibition, they were actually trying to do the right thing, by and large. And so that's a law that actually made sense. If you're a bar owner, it was really nice to have it be against the law for a manufacturer to come in and strong-arm you. But it's, a long, it's been a long time well, you know, since yeah. then. It was, Robin, you know this, in England, it was the Tide Houses. Yeah. That was the same thing, where you had one, each bar only had one beer, and they were tied to a brewery. And this is... Now we're talking what, what Well, that was in uh, America before Prohibition. It was uh-huh, the same way. Yeah. Where each bar had a tight house. They could only mm. sell certain beers. And that's, the, that's one of the good parts of Prohibition, that they broke that. So you're able, each bar owner is able to decide what, what beers to have. It's very interesting. I, I had a friend here last night fr- who just got off a plane from England who uh, runs a theater in London, which also has a restaurant attached to it. And he was thrilled at the notion that we could stay open late. <laughs> he said, no, I mean, the, the really weird thing, when I grew up in England, um, pub hours were so restricted. There were three hours at lunch that you could be open, and then there were five hours 
in the evening and you have to close at 10 or 11 o'clock mm -hmm. on Fridays and Saturdays. Is that right? 11, max. 11. Mm -hmm. You're too young to remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Your parents told you this. Um, but um, even now, he said the restaurant, you know, they have a bar and a restaurant and two theaters in this beautiful complex. And he said the, the entire building has to be closed by 11.30 on Friday and Saturday, 11 o'clock on other days of the week, and 10.30 on Sunday. And he said, you know, first of all, you know, the play, the play can run two hours, and, you know, nobody's going to come out to the, re to the restaurant. And then, you know, so do you go in for short plays, I asked him, um, which is what I used to, when we did theater down here, I used to favor new scripts um, that had frequent intermissions because <laughs> you send people we, to the bar. Yeah, we supported the arts by making frequent trips to the bar, um, which turns out to be a Republican model to my horror. <laughs> we do not get any. <laughs> we have no funding, but it, it's fascinating. I mean, I'm sure a lot has been written about those kinds of things, tide pubs and and restrictions and prohibition and so on and so forth. Fascinating. That well, let's make a toast in New York City, right? Oh, you, can, right. you can drink okay. late, you can, okay. you can make whiskey and all these things. And uh, we're, we're going to keep this one running. The reason is this is a live audience. And also, um, since Derek is tasting everyone on, you know, on his whiskey, so he has a single malt. Yeah. That's really great. Um, we, have a, we have a big enough. Let, let Robin taste. Robin, why don't you tell us what you taste Oh, I'm the worst. You're an expert taster. No, you no, must I'm be. Not. No, 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 no. I do Marcel Marceau wine descriptions, <laughs> which <laughs> for those of you who know Marcel Marceau, um, but that doesn't work on radio. And and since I have one arm in a sling, it limits my. You, you can't tell us one thing about this oh, whiskey. Yes, I can. All right. Taste it, and what do you say? Ren. <laughs> Tastes like Bren. Now, what is so wonderful about this is that, um, and I, I have been one of Alison's sort of biggest fans since I stumbled across her sitting all alone at some table <laughs> some in, trade a, show. In, a, in a hotel. <laughs> and it turned out she lives around the corner on Bleecker Street. So I tracked her down, and this <clears throat> stuff is amazing. I mean, to me, what is remarkable about this is the, it, it's sort of a halfway house between what one thinks of as whiskey and what one thinks of as cognac. And to be able to bridge that is, seems to me to be remarkable. So what one, I mean, were you to put me up against a wall, as I'll leave the next word out of that, um, I... I would say there is something remarkable about marrying what I assume is, is it barley? All barley. All yeah. barley. And grape. I mean, well, cognac is one of those things that's made from grapes, and yeah. it's aged in uh, cognac barrels. So that Derek, can it, you're tasting the Bren, so it's the French barley whiskey aged in cognac barrels. Anything that comes to, to your mind when you taste it? You know, I, I actually can't, uh, I can't describe that uh, any better than uh, than that. I mean, I think that that's a brilliant description. The the idea that this is a marrying of, of grape and, and barley is really uh, is really brilliant. That's great. And uh, can we taste your, your whiskey too? The Van Brunt Stillhouse? Um, 
Allison, what do you, so what, what, you want to give us any tasting notes on that? Oh, put, put me on the yeah. spot. Yeah, well, wow. the whole audience <laughs> is tasting it. So. <laughs> well, delicious is the first word that comes to mind. I could easily sit back and, and, uh, and enjoy this regularly. So it's single malt, but it's not really peaty or smoky. Mm -mm. It's more There's... like an American single malt. Yeah, so, so uh, what, what I'm doing is bringing uh, uh, roasted and caramelized malts to the fore. Uh, uh, the reason that, that scotch... Well, it's like at least west coast of Scotland, scotches are speedy. Is that that's the fuel they had to dry out their mm. malt, mm. Uh, and and then so once great. industrialization happened, uh, and you could do it with natural gas, they decided that they liked that flavor, and I like that flavor. I'm glad they decided that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, uh, it's it, what. But that doesn't. I don't. There's no peat here. There, there's nothing to connect me to that. And so I wanted to to bring something a little bit different. Uh, you know. I wanted this to be a, a local, I wanted this to be my, I wanted to touch this, I wanted it to be my own flavors, uh, a New York, Brooklyn flavor, and so that's why I went with the, um, those roasted notes, it's, there's, there's something called coffee malt, there's no coffee in it, there's something called chocolate malt, there's no chocolate in it, it's just that the malt has been roasted to those temperatures, mm. and, uh, and it brings in those flavors. Well, it has great cereal notes to it also, in addition to, to what you're doing in the barrels, with the barrel maturation. And you said it's a 100% all virgin American oak? Yep. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, but those cereal notes, um, I mean, uh, age is a very complicated yeah. uh, conversation in whiskey because my distillery is three years old. And, uh, and so <laughs> this is not eight-year-old whiskey. Uh, and I'm not, I don't pretend that it is. It's, uh, it, this, this whiskey was in a barrel for a year. And what... It, what you, you certainly um, what you gain by that is that one of those one of those more volatile flavors that evaporates out of the side of the barrel in the angel share is the 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 aromatics of the grain. Mm -hmm. So you get with young whiskey, you get a lot more cereal, and uh, I think I personally think that's a positive. Yeah, I think I think it's all positive. I think I mean, depending on how you're doing your barrel maturation and depending on how you're working your still, because you clearly have an elegant distillate. You can tell just by drinking this whiskey. I mean, there's you. I want to taste now what you're doing right off the still, and I, and I like that you kept it at this age. I think it's really beautiful and it's still really well balanced. And there's enough of a punch and there's enough of the. I, I like that you get to really taste that multi quality to it. Well, I think like some of the, the mainstream bourbons that people talk about, I don't know what, what their base distillate tastes like because there's so much aging in there. And, and I feel like that I'm much more interested in these new New York State whiskeys where they're, they're young and you actually taste the grain. So thumbs up, you know, bottoms up to that. Yeah. Well, Robin, yeah. tell us about, we, we have a little time left. Tell us about your program. You have 37, 47 years. You've got wine. <laughs> you've got liquors. Tell us well, about the, the program you guys here for wines well, and spirits. we do. I'm... Um, I mean, this is um, a bit <laughs> gross because it's all about numbers. We do 35 wines by the glass. So what we try and do, and uh, you, will come up you will come upstairs afterwards and work your way through all of them. Um, <laughs> to be uh, what we the try <laughs> to do is, you know, we, we do some of the old standbys that we have to do. Um, but we also try and discover <laughs> wines that nobody knows. For example, we have a red wine that we disco discovered, obviously through somebody who brought it in. Um, we have a red wine from Idaho. And everybody thinks, oh, Idaho potatoes. But the Sawtooth River in 
Idaho flows into Washington State. So Washington State, of course. Idaho, what do you mean? There's wine in Idaho? There's actually very interesting wine in Idaho, and this particular vineyard makes a very good Riesling, which we have carried. It makes a very good Syrah, but the one that we tend to carry is um, their red blend, which has a different... And these are all grapes that they grow on their soil in Idaho. This year's blend has five different grapes in it. Uh, last year's had eight. Um, we do have uh, an interesting wine from um, Oregon, a wonderful guy called Rudy. I, th I hope I have his name right. His name's Rudy, and I think his last name is Deutsch, um, who started out in Montana and was going to go to law school. So sort of, it's a similar journey to yours. He was going to go to law school in California, so he goes to California to stay with his grandfather and discovers that his grandfather in the basement is making wine. He says, oh, that's a lot more interesting than law school. So he goes up to Oregon, actually buys land in Oregon, and starts making wine. His vineyard is called Montenor, Montana in Oregon. And it's all, it's not just organic, it's all biodynamic. And the Borealis of his that we carry, which is a wonderful play on words, Borealis being the Northern Lights, his Northern Lights are Northern Whites. There are four <laughs> Northern European white grapes. Um, Pinot Gris, which one knows, Gewürztraminer, which one knows, Müller Thurgau, probably less known, and there's a fourth grape that's going to come into my head, maybe if I wave my arm around enough. <laughs> um, anyhow, he makes it from four grapes grown biodynamically in Oregon. And biodynamics, as you all know, is the um, Rudolf Steiner method of mm. agriculture, really. Mm -hmm. um, fascinating stuff. So I've no idea what question you asked me, but that was, <laughs> a, um, that was an answer to something. My name is Brandon Hoy, co-owner of Roberta's, a super-duper-awesome place. Roberta's is a very, 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 very proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. I just want to draw people in in case, you know, if you're, if you're listening out there, when you come to New York City, in the West Village, there's so some cool places. And in the 90s, I hung out on Cornelius Street. I used to go to Home Restaurant. Poe Restaurant was where Mario Batali started, mm -hmm. and Cornelius Street Cafe is like one of the mainstays. So if you're listeners out there, this is a place to come to still in the West Village. Thank you. And the cafe is beautiful upstairs. The menu looks great. Yeah. And look at these tables. Yeah, it's a cool place, Made man. Made out of yeah. wine bottles. I bet, I bet, Derek, have you never been here before? Uh, I was here uh, 15 years ago when I first moved to New York. But um, <coughs> From think, The Daily Show, I mean, John Oliver has done stuff down here. Well, Fabulous. Yes. And then he went on to bigger and better things. And will we see him again? Do you always have to have a uh, British accent to work down here? Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It always yes. makes, it's the best radio. That's why we invited you up. So, and Liz, another Brit. So Liz, just tell everyone about th this little series you're doing. And, uh, okay, just to you know, recap. Recap it. Recap it. Um, well, tonight has been amazing. Thank you all for coming. Oh, my goodness. Thank you for having us. It was wonderful. Robin, thank you for joining. Um, I just want to actually add, Robin Robin gave you a little bit of uh, a story about 
Cornelia Street Cafe, but what most impresses me about Cornelia Street Cafe is that in 1977, am I mm. correct? Mm -hmm. Robin Hirsch, who's sitting to my left, um, was, was 11 at the time. He was 11 years old <laughs> at the time. <clears throat> yeah, in 1977, Robin was 11, and he stumbled down Cornelia Street in a jolly sort of way and uh, found this place and totally owned it and took it on and sanded all of the floors by hand and made it his space. And today it runs more than 700 events per year yeah. annually, which is kind of incredible math when you try yeah. to work that Qu out. Quantity, not necessarily quality, <clears throat> but we're... <laughs> <laughs> I would argue, but, 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 <laughs> but, but thank you, Robin, for letting us use your wonderful space this evening. And <clears throat> in terms of the series, it's called Fork It Over. And that's exactly what we've done tonight. We forked it over. We forked it over the whiskey and the wonderful story of everything that everyone here has to share. So thank you all for sharing. And Jimmy, thank you for, for hosting right. us. Well, this is a live recording, Heritage Radio Network. Not sure when it will air, but uh, it was a great time tonight. <laughs> Thanks so much. Well, to air is human. <laughs>